Whatever it is that we're seeking, whatever it is that we're trying to work towards, there will, believe it or not, be occasions when there it is, it arrives. And the thing that we'll be exploring today, we're able to recognize it as such. We know that this is what we were headed for, and we know it with certainty. There are aspects of our everyday experience which may encourage us to believe that certainty is not something we can ever genuinely possess. And it's not rare to hear the view expressed in mainstream discourse that we can't ever really be totally sure of anything. Obviously, our perceptions and our thoughts are capable of misleading us. So we end up with an idea that in order to be certain of something, it has to be validated by something else beyond personal experience. But equally obviously, this isn't how human life is lived. Even people who might hold to some of the more extreme philosophical views, such as the idea that we're living in some kind of simulation, are they really sufficiently invested and immersed that they can sustain that doubt indefinitely as they go about their everyday life? That would demand a great deal of effort. One of the characteristics of certainty or arriving at a sure piece of knowledge is that at that point effort stops. If someone was sure that the world were a simulation they presumably wouldn't need to doubt their experience any longer. And yet that particular perspective seems to depend precisely on being in a constant state of doubt. Who is there that has never had the experience of making a choice over something in life and knowing absolutely that the choice we're making is the right one for us? Often what makes it all the more striking is that the choice we know with certainty is the right one for us may often not necessarily be the easier option just because we're now certain that we're on the right path doesn't mean that the path won't be arduous people can be right about things and know that they're right about them this happens all of the time, and it's silly to pretend that it doesn't. Our lives would be unlivable if we weren't capable of being 
certain about things. And yet, of course, it's equally silly to reject scepticism out of hand. A good question to ask ourselves is maybe, what is it that this certainty I'm currently experiencing has come to replace? The enduring problem, of course, is that certainty and ignorance can look exactly the same. Somebody who knows can make the same decisions and perform the same actions as somebody who's acting completely on the basis of chance or luck. When we're ignorant of something, we can't draw any conclusions about it. We can't really think about it. In that case, certainty, knowledge, does not, cannot arise from ignorance. There are two other states that perhaps it's wiser to regard as the seedbed of certainty. The first is confusion and the second is doubt. As the old saying goes, ignorance is bliss, but confusion certainly doesn't feel pleasant. Confusion might be described as a confrontation with something, but we lack any understanding of its nature. What is this thing we're asking ourselves when we're confused? And yet, confusion is a major step up from ignorance. In ignorance, we have no knowledge of the thing, but in confusion, at least, although it may feel very unpleasant, we do know that we don't know the thing. And maybe a further step up is doubt. Often, doubt doesn't feel as unpleasant as confusion. Often, the feelings attendant upon confusion are in the domain of fear, whereas with doubt, it's as if a more active response kicks in, and there can be sometimes angry or irritable feelings associated with it. Implied in doubt is a greater understanding of what confronts us. To doubt something, we have to have some grasp on what it is. Perhaps what comes more under scrutiny in doubt is precisely this conception that we've formed of whatever it is that confronts us. If confusion is trying to get to grips with what is this thing, doubt can be more about have I formed an accurate impression of it? And that's the point at which knowledge, certainty can arise. So, when it seems that something like certainty has arisen within us, we might be well advised to trust that more if that has come after passing through phases of confusion and doubt rather 
than if it has just sprung out of nowhere fully formed into our awareness. In the tarot, the card, the sun, is described by Alistair Crowley as one of the simplest of the cards. But is it possible that Crowley might be conflating the symbolism of this archetype with its meaning? Certainly, simplicity is one of the meanings of this card. It conveys those moments in life, those experiences that we've been discussing, where we can find ourselves basking in the bright light of certainty, sure knowledge. We're no longer seeking, we no longer need to scrutinise or doubt, because everything that needs to be there is there, right in front of us, visible, clear, conveyed through this symbol of the sun shining brightly in a totally clear sky. But, in the various guises this archetype has taken on in the tarot down through the centuries, it hasn't always been simply the sun alone that finds depiction in this card. In its most frequent guise, and as it happens to appear in the Marseille tarot, beneath the blazing sun are two children standing within a walled garden or enclosure. The child on the right is affectionately touching the back of the head of the child on the left, and the child on the left seems to be reciprocating this affectionate gesture by touching the child on the right in the centre of his chest. The rider weight deck takes a slightly different approach. Here, beneath the blazing bright sun, within the walled garden bursting with sunflowers, we have a single naked child looking joyful, gleeful, sitting astride a white horse. And from the child's left hand, a banner, a piece of bright red cloth is billowing in the breeze. Children, a walled garden, gardens and flowers, innocence, and the blazing light of the sun, a way, perhaps, to begin to understand how all these symbolic elements interact and work together is to return to that central idea of certainty, maybe being like standing, basking in the radiant hot light of the sun. Often we're encouraged to believe that our relationship to the truth is by its nature always problematic, or these days, that supposedly in reality there's no such thing as truth at all. 
what this archetype conveys is a very different notion. The idea that our relationship to the truth is actually like sunbathing. We're totally immersed in it, irradiated by it. It's generously, endlessly pouring down onto us. Far from it being the case that there's no such thing as truth, in actuality we're surrounded by the stuff all of the time. However, truth comes in different varieties. And those varieties are characterised by the different conditions attached to it. Some truths such as 2 plus 2 equals 4, for instance, seem to be true universally, forever, regardless even perhaps of whether there are human beings around to recognise them, whereas other truths very much depend upon living human beings, such as the truth of our feelings for or our opinions about another person. And then there are truths that arise at particular times or in particular places, such as whether it's true to say that it's raining outside today. Just because truth might be plural or truth might be conditional are we really warranted to say that this isn't really truth? That it doesn't really exist? What this might entail to return to the symbolism of this archetype is that in the everyday world our certainty, our knowledge it's real but it has a wall around it. It's like a walled garden those walls are the conditions, the limits, within which, in everyday experience, we can enjoy certainty. And within those limits, it is real and true, as the joy of the children in these images testifies. Although the garden is walled, we cannot say that they're not actually enjoying the heat and the light of the sun. Consequently then, perhaps, the enjoyment of certainty and knowledge demands from us something childlike, a certain kind of innocence. A walled garden is maybe a bit like a playpen, it's an environment in which a child may be able to enjoy him or herself. But for an adult, it maybe seems a bit limiting. If we choose to act more in the manner of a grown-up and defy those limits by deciding to go elsewhere, to leave behind that enclosure, then wherever we end up, the conditions might be different there. Having pushed beyond those previous limits, how do we know that we'll be able to have there what
what we had before. Will the sun shine on us as brightly in this new place? What the wisdom of this archetype might be trying to convey is that our enjoyment of certainty and knowledge entails an acceptance of its limits and maybe sometimes this is reflected in language we might find ourselves saying something like well if I know one thing then it's such and such or well at the very least I know this and maybe what's going on in a situation where we find ourselves saying something like that is we're resisting a temptation to go beyond the limit of what we know we can rest our knowledge and certainty upon. Sometimes, of course, this kind of manoeuvre can be a way of resisting a truth or an opportunity for growth. And yet, at other times, it genuinely isn't. On the contrary, sometimes it can be a means of preserving what we have and by not overextending ourselves, remaining in the light of the sun. The same principle is at work in the advice often given to writers to write what you know. Writing from a place of familiarity is far more likely to produce something good, something authentic, than if we fall into the trap of trying to liberate ourselves from our own limits, as it might seem. There's another detail in the symbolism of this archetype for us to consider, which is where there are two figures shown in that enclosure or garden. Presumably there's something here about the nature of the relationship between them. In the Maasai deck, those two children, one touching the head of the other and the other touching the heart of the other whilst held in a mutual embrace and in the Rider Waite deck that joyful infant on the back of a white horse. Could it be that what's being suggested here is that the nature of certainty, of sure knowledge is dual in some respect. A duality of heart and head of feeling and rationality perhaps in the case of the Marseille tarot and in the case of the rider weight the infant and the horse a duality perhaps between the cognitive capacity of the human and the instinctual vitality of the animal in everyday life it's usually quite possible to distinguish between these two quite different ways of knowing, of arriving at knowledge. On the one hand, there's that rational, analytic, 
cognitive way of knowing things. We can often identify knowledge that's been arrived at through this route by its having a methodology. It's always possible to say of what we came to know by this route, how we came to know it. It can often be something quite simple, such as I read it in a book, or I asked this person and they told me, or it might be something far more complicated and innovative, such as, well, I followed this particular algorithm here, or I conducted this particular experiment under these conditions, and here are the results. This contrasts very markedly with the other type of knowledge that we maybe just as often find ourselves relying upon. That way of knowing things which is intuitive, spontaneous. Another word for it might be moral, because if we're confronted with some kind of ethical problem, then it's precisely this second kind of knowledge that we're probably going to need to draw upon. In an ethical dilemma, often it's not going to be rational analysis or somebody else's opinion or an algorithm or an experiment that's going to decide for us the right course of action. Probably what we'll end up doing is not really referring to anything outside ourselves at all, but simply looking within and enabling our innate moral sense to provide the answer. Whereas analytical knowing implies a methodology, implies performing some sort of action, whatever that might be, to arrive at it. On the other hand, this intuitive knowledge, this moral knowledge, actually requires of us that we don't try to do anything at all, but instead we listen. What exactly we're listening to perhaps is labelled in all sorts of different ways. Our feelings, our conscience, our heart, or our gut. Whatever it might be, the main factor seems to be this receptivity to something within ourselves, something innate that produces this knowledge. What this archetype seems to be showing us then, maybe, through the image of the two children embracing each other, and the infant riding the horse, is that in those moments when we arrive at certainty, at sure knowledge, both those types of knowledge have a part to play, and mutually support one another. They're both valid, both important. This, maybe, offers us some important consolation. It's quite possible that, as individuals, 
one of these types of knowing may be more highly developed in us than the other. We might be more analytical or we might be more intuitive. And indeed we might notice that one of these faculties could be really quite weak in comparison to the other. But maybe, possibly, that's okay. In that ancient manual of Buddhist meditation known as the Vimuttimaga or the Path of Freedom by the Arahat Apatisa, he describes how those seeking enlightenment fall into some broad personality types that might be taken as representative of those of us with a stronger tendency towards analytical knowing and a stronger tendency towards intuitive knowing. The analytical type he describes as a walker in hatred. One who walks in hate, he says, looks at an object thus. He does not look long at an object, as though he were tired. Even with very good things, he is not pleased. Thus, he rejects all things. Towards other objects of sense also he behaves in the same way. When we're in an analytical mindset, indeed it seems to be the case that that's often about testing things, doubting things, trying to destroy them to see if they'll stand up to scrutiny. Analysis is uh, quite rough and hateful approach to objects from this perspective. But the other type of person, the type that might correspond with someone more predisposed to the intuitive kind of knowing, this type of person Apatisa calls the one who walks in passion. One who walks in passion, he says, looks at an object as if he had not seen it before. He does not see its faults and does not consider them. He does not make light of even a little merit. He cannot free himself of the desire for it. Towards the other objects of sense, also he behaves in the same way. So this is somebody who encounters things and just thinks they're fabulous, exactly the way they are. Intuitive knowing indeed has this characteristic of being so open and accepting and unresistant to things that their nature can be grasped really quickly and clearly. The good news, according to Apatisa, is that in terms of attaining enlightenment, it doesn't really matter which of these types you might happen to be. They both progress quickly along the path to awakening. The type that we should do our best not to emulate, Apatisa calls the one who walks in infatuation. One who walks 
in infatuation, he says, looks at an object thus. He believes others as regards merits and demerits of anything. He considers worthless what others consider worthless. He praises what others praise because he does not know. The implication here seems to be that if somebody just accepts the opinions of others about things in the world, then they're not actually engaging with those things in the world themselves. This is not a path to knowledge. Engagement is what counts. We might hate a particular thing, or we might be passionate about a particular thing. Regardless of which one we happen to be, either hate or passion will lead us to knowledge of that thing. Rational, analytic knowledge, or intuitive, moral knowledge, both can take us to the certainty we seek. And then, when we arrive there, into that walled garden, we can just be still and know. <laughs>